The American Council of the Blind plays an important role in the daily lives of blind and visually impaired individuals all over the country. Whether it's making products and services more accessible for the blind, advocating for appropriate education for blind students, issuing scholarships to deserving college students, fighting for accessible currency, along with a host of other issues, it takes contributions from all of us. You can help by joining the monthly monetary support program, MMS. It's a great opportunity for members and friends to make sure these efforts continue. What ACB does enhances all of our lives. For more information, go to our website, acb.org, click on the donations link, go to the MMS tab, and enter. Or call 612-332-3242. California, Florida, Iowa, Texas, guide dog users, students, IT professionals, government employees. The American Council of the Blind has members in all 50 states and is actively engaged in a wide variety of activities. We advocate for the education, employment, and social inclusion of all blind and visually impaired Americans. We publish a monthly magazine. We hold an annual conference and convention and operate a multi-channel internet radio station. Check us out at acb.org. Together, we can do anything. Have you been grappling with a difficult problem? Searching for a solution that appears intent on evading you? You might be surprised to learn that the ideal solution to the problem doesn't exist out there, but rather within yourself. This is Dr. Linda Bolay, creator of Sleuthhound U, mastering the art of solution seeking. Please join me each month for a fresh look at problem solving through a solution-focused lens. In the words of Swiss psychologist and psychiatrist Carl Jung, your vision will become clear only when you can look into your own heart. One who looks outside dreams. One who looks inside awakens. Sleuth Hound You with Dr. Linda Bollet coming to ACB Radio soon. Welcome to another edition of On the Inside Track. Have you ever wondered how a person became who they are today? How did they come to certain beliefs? How did they choose a particular path? Who or what influenced the person they are now? Join me, Debbie Hazelton, on the Inside Track. As one-on-one, my guests and I explore defining moments from there to here on the inside track. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of On the Inside Track. My guest for this month of April is someone I've been enjoying getting to know. She will be bringing us a new show soon. Her name is Dr. Linda Bollet. She is a clinical psychologist and a coach, and she will be bringing us a show called Sleuthhound You that you have heard in one of the promos here on ACB Radio mainstream. So let's enjoy Dr. Linda Bollet. You are the creator of our new show that will be coming called Sleuth Hound You. 
Mm-hmm. And I know you're a member of Bay State. And mm-hmm. is it fair to say you are legally blind? Yes, that's correct. You have some vision. I do. Read large print most of the time. Yes. I know that you started out in a career of tech support, right? Yes. Was that something that you wanted to do initially, or was that just kind of a way of finding a job? Did you have a particular career in mind? No, actually, I got a bachelor's degree in psychology. And my intention was to go on and to get a master's degree and perhaps at some point a PhD. And I found myself at my senior year of college, and I had two roommates. One was a communications major, and one was a business major. And senior year, and there were companies coming onto campus to interview seniors for potential job openings. And my goodness, what was I going to do with a bachelor's degree in psychology? <laughs> And I didn't feel ready to go on for my master's at that point. I had considered taking a year off and had actually started the process of applying for a volunteer position with the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. And that process was underway. And I went down to check my mail one afternoon and I found a flyer in my mailbox that was talking about a master's program in rehabilitation teaching that was being offered at Boston College, which is where I was getting my bachelor's degree. And it was free tuition, so tuition remission and also a living stipend. Hmm. And I thought, how could I possibly pass something like this up? Yeah. (laughs) So I applied for the program and I was accepted. And I turned around and I let the Jesuit Volunteer Corps know that I was no longer interested. And they were very disappointed and I felt badly about that. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I knew I needed to do what was right for me. And so I started that program. It was a 12-month intensive. And what I found I was most interested in as I was going through that program was the technology that was coming available for folks who were blind and visually impaired that would allow them access to computers. And there wasn't a lot known about these kinds of things back then. Boston College actually had a library, and in the basement of that library, they had an entire room that was filled with adaptive equipment. So text-to-speech, Braille translation software, large print software, and nobody knew how to use it. So me and one of my classmates would go down there in the afternoons and tinker around with this stuff and figure it out, and we had great fun doing that. That is so cool. So when I graduated, I had the fortune of finding a position with a company in Boston that specialized in adaptive technology, and I worked for them for a couple of years. And then I wanted to move on to opportunities that provided me with job growth and so forth. So I took a position with a company called Lotus Development Corporation, which is no longer in existence, but they were well known at the time for Lotus 123, which is a spreadsheet software program. That wasn't in terms of accessibility, though. That was just for that software? Right, exactly, for their software. 
I was using adaptive software by that point. And so that was what allowed me to actually start working for that company. Because it was a large company, there were lots of opportunities for me to move either horizontally or vertically. And so I, I made that move for myself just in terms of career advancement. And I'm curious how you sort of reconciled or pieced together the whole idea of going into psychology, thinking that's what you were going to do more of. Was it rehab teaching? Mm -hmm. Yes. Accessibility in terms of the software or the technology, and then just working with this software in terms of technical support. How did mm -hmm. that all come together for you in your mind of what you wanted to do or what you were doing? And it's an interesting question. And my answer is that at that point in time, I didn't know. Mm -hmm. I was probably in my mid-20s at that point mm -hmm. and was just following my nose. And it actually wasn't until perhaps a few years ago that I was able to tie everything together. And for me, my entire career has been about helping people solve problems. Mm -hmm. And so even though the problems themselves might have been different, it was, it was all about helping people solve problems. Whatever problems they happened to have in the setting where I was working, my job was to help people solve the problems that they were up against. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. And certainly at all levels of tech support and learning about psychology, and I can see where there would be that common thread. How can I help people with solving, solving, solving these particular problems? I remember when I started to get to know the landscape of technology, it also seemed fascinating to think about how instantaneously we can be connected with other people. Mm -hmm. uh, although Lotus was more about spreadsheet kinds of things, wasn't it? Yeah. They had other products as well. People would call and say, you know, I'm trying to use your software for this or that or the other thing, and I'm, I'm having a hard time figuring out how I might do this. Mm -hmm. And so there was an opportunity for me to say, well, let's put our heads together and let's look at what you're trying to do. And based on the knowledge that I have about the software and how it works, I can give you some suggestions. So... You ended up moving into this realm of working with sighted people then, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. And I gather because you see some, you could relate to what they were seeing on the screen from, mm -hmm. from that perspective. So was it a challenge in terms of being visually impaired to get hired in that or to move in that direction? It actually was. And it's a long story. What I found out after I had been hired was that I, I almost was denied the opportunity to work there because in the words of the hiring manager who later admitted this to me, we thought you were totally blind. Mm. 
obviously it would have been highly illegal for them to not mm -hmm. hire me because of my disability. Sure. And to mm. even assume that a totally blind person couldn't handle it. And right. And I think the reason why they had come to that conclusion was because some months prior they had hired someone who was totally blind. She was having difficulties, but it really had nothing to do with her blindness. Mm-hmm. It was just, I think, convenient for them to say, well, she's struggling because she's not able to see. Mm -hmm. And so they made up in their minds that, that visually impaired people can't do this type of work. So I had the opportunity to prove otherwise. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, and I imagine you did a, an excellent job and, you know, you had probably had a very good track record. Well, I was there for 12 years, wow. and I left of my own free will, so I would like to say that they were satisfied with my work. It sounds like it, yeah, and probably sorry to see you go. I would think so. So when in the process did you decide, because you stayed there 12 years, when mm -hmm. did you decide that you wanted to do something different I moved up the ranks, so I started off as a support analyst, and then I moved up into a supervisory position, and then a management position. I really started to become disenchanted with the business world. It was all about the mighty dollar. Mm -hmm. And the higher up in the organization that I moved, the more apparent that became. And I sort of lost interest. I started to feel like, you know, I feel like I've done everything that I want to do here, and I can't think of anything else that I'd like to do. And there was this little nagging voice inside my head that was saying, didn't you say you wanted to go back to graduate school someday and get an advanced degree in psychology? And I said to myself, well, yes, in fact, you did. And it was a very courageous thing to walk out of a job like that where I was earning a good salary mm -hmm. to go back to graduate school full time and to pursue my doctoral degree in clinical psychology. So you didn't go back to school while you were working. You waited until you were out of there and then went yes. back to school. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't imagine going through the graduate program that I went through and working mm -hmm. full time. I would not have been able to do it. Mm -hmm. And it was a doctoral program that combined a master's combining the two? Yes. Wow. Mm -hmm. How long did that take? It took about five years. Mm-hmm. The program, and then I had to do another year of postdoctoral work before I could sit for the licensing exam. Mm. Wow. So, yeah. From the time I started till the time I got licensed as a psychologist was six years. Mm -hmm. That's quite a labor. <laughs> yes. Wow. <laughs> it's a good thing that I didn't know then what I was going to be going through in order to get to where I wanted to be because I really think I would have thought twice about doing that. <laughs> I can imagine. Mm. Wow. So then there you were ready to start your practice as a clinical psychologist. Mm -hmm. What was that like? Well, again, it was me trying to figure out how I was going to 
do what I needed to do, what I wanted to do in an environment with all of my peers being fully sighted. Mm -hmm. And the organization was certainly interested in helping me succeed. They got me adaptive software and adaptive hardware and so on and so forth. It was really up to me to figure out how to make it all work. Did they hire you? What I'm referring to is my first job out of okay. graduate school, so after, after a licensure. And, well, I just do what I always do, which was to persevere and figure it out as I go along. And Good for you. So um, you didn't go into private practice. No, I didn't. I'm still working for that organization. Oh, interesting. So oh. that was 2007. So yeah, that's been mm-hmm. over 12 years that I've been there. So you made it work. Yes. And then somewhere in this time, you also had another feeling. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> I seem to have these 10 to 12 year career cycles. And so it, it's interesting to me that right about the same time in this career, as in the last career, I started to have these feelings of, you know, I feel like there's, there's something more I want to do. Mm-hmm. And it was at that point that I decided to enroll in a coach training program. So this was almost three years ago. Mm-hmm. And it was a program that took place over the course of a summer, started in the spring, went through the summer. And So I went through that training program, and I cut back on my clinical psychology hours in order to start this coaching practice on the side. Okay. And so now, is the coaching practice over the phone? Mm -hmm. Yes. In fact, my practice is entirely telephone-based. It seems to me that there's a lot of overlap between the psych field and the coaching. When I think about what coaches do, I think that some aspects of psychotherapy also do what coaches do, but coaches don't do all the things that clinical psych people do. Right. That's exactly right. So if you were already a psychotherapist, a psychologist, I wonder, what did the coaching field give you that you didn't already have? So as a psychologist, I work within a medical model. Mm -hmm. And so within that model, I need to diagnose Mm -hmm. and treat medical problems, so to speak. And so when someone comes to me for assistance, I need to do an assessment and decide, well, perhaps this person is dealing with depression or an anxiety disorder or some other condition that needs to be quote-unquote treated. And so I work with those folks within that medical model, which unfortunately focuses on problems rather than solutions. Had you ever thought of taking the psychotherapy into just a private practice where you would merge the two, or is that sort of what you're doing now? I thought about it many times, and I decided that I didn't want to go it alone in terms of a psychotherapy practice because I work for a large 
healthcare organization. And I really appreciate that I can have access to a patient's medical record and I can see the work that they're doing with the primary care team, any specialists. It's worth mentioning that I work with patients who are living with chronic pain. I remember you saying that to me. Yeah. Yeah, and so very often patients, in addition to working with me and their primary care team, may also be working with a specialist like a rheumatologist or an oncologist or a neurologist. And it's vital to me that I be able to read the notes of the other practitioners so that I can look at the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And so now in your coaching, are any of the people that you have as coaching clients, are any of them people that came to you for psychotherapy or would you feel that you have to keep them separate because of the different places where you're working and things? I've made the decision to keep them separate. Okay. Okay. I I believe there may be psychologists out there who are coaching their patients. I have incorporated some of the coaching curriculum into my psychology practice Mm -hmm. and my, I made the decision to keep my psychotherapy patients and my coaching clients separate. Fascinating. I can see where the procedures of what is in your workplace and things like that would help to keep those boundaries very clear, those mm-hmm. categories very clear. Mm-hmm. I can see where maybe that would. I can imagine that you have people that come for psychotherapy. Does it seem to you that some of them just really could benefit from more coaching? Yes. In fact, I think it's helpful to know that any individual can be working with the psychotherapist and a coach at the same time. As separate people? Or yes. Or in one person? No. Well, okay. One person can be working with both okay. types of okay, professionals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That I have ha- had patients who have been working simultaneously with life coaches outside mm-hmm. of the therapy. Mm-hmm. And I have had coaching clients who have been working with psychotherapists at the same time that I've been coaching them. But not too often seeing someone who has both been a therapist and a coach? No, it's generally that is frowned upon. Hmm. That's fascinating because I'm thinking of something like humanistic psych. And I can remember when I was in graduate school, working with a therapist who I think really was not so much, she did what she had to do with the medical model in order to file insurance, et cetera, but she was very active, very eclectic, which I think of a coach as being very eclectic, very, like you said, very solution-oriented, not just passive, which a lot of therapy has tended to be. Mm-hmm. Was there a particular school of psychotherapy that you specialized in? I would say that if you were to observe my sessions with my therapy patients, 
if anything was to stand out at all, it would be cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay. Which is actually has seemed to emerge more in in more recent years, would that be fair to say? Mm -hmm. It's sort of something that's come to be a blend of even some of the humanistic and behavioral. Yes. And I think we hear a lot these days in the therapy arena about empirically validated treatments. Hmm. And I think that cognitive behavioral therapy probably has more empirical validation than some of the other schools of psychotherapy. So what does that mean to you for anyone who doesn't know what that might mean? That means that there's research that proves that cognitive behavioral therapy helps to improve conditions like major depression or panic disorder or generalized anxiety disorder. I think the thing that I appreciate about cognitive behavioral is that there's more of an emphasis on feelings that are sort of underpinning behavior rather than just, let's just change this behavior mm -hmm. without even looking at the feeling. Working. Right. What are the thoughts that drive the feelings and what are the thoughts and the feelings that drive the behaviors? Mm-hmm. And what are the consequences of engaging in those behaviors and helping people to sort of think that through? So when you're coaching, aren't you also doing some kind of an assessment of how someone is feeling and helping them to change some of the behaviors that are contributing to the way they're thinking and feeling? In some sense, I will say that having the background that I have definitely helps in terms of me educating my coaching mm -hmm. clients so that when they wonder why they're behaving in ways that they're behaving, perhaps, for example, they've identified a goal that they'd like to pursue. And now all of a sudden they find themselves feeling stuck. And why aren't I able to move toward my goal, this goal that I I feel I want so very much what's holding me back. Mm -hmm. And because of my background, I'm able to explain what some of the forces might be that are holding them back, fear being probably one of the biggest. So just in terms of helping them to make sense of what they're doing or not doing, as the case may be. So I wonder if a number, it's kind of a funny question here, but I wonder if a lot of people who go to a psychotherapist might end up in a system that kind of says, well, you're in this system, now you have to deal with these procedures and this diagnosis and and all of these kinds of things when a lot of them might just be stuck and need a coach. Mm -hmm. And it's unfortunate that this becomes a case of the health insurance company driving the ship here. Mm -hmm. Because if people want to come to a professional and use their health insurance to pay for the service, then the health insurance requires that the person be given a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. 
and that the treatment focus on the amelioration of that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So that becomes the focus is this is the problem and these are the treatments that are known to alleviate the problem. And so this needs to be the focus of the work. So it sounds in a way like it's more system-centered than person-centered. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. What an interesting place for you to be, though, to have the advantage of knowing that system and then deciding to kind of add this other avenue and and working with both of them. That's Mm. really brilliant in a way, I would say. I have, as I mentioned, incorporated some of the coaching work into the work that I'm doing with higher functioning patients. Mm -hmm. And perhaps my particular population of patients isn't a good example because in addition to dealing with depression or anxiety, they all are living with chronic pain as well. When I think about, gosh, would any of the patients who I'm seeing for therapy make good coaching clients? I don't see them in that light. Perhaps that's because of the lens through which I need to look in order to work with these patients. That again, I'm focused on the problem. What's the diagnosis? How do we treat the problem? That kind of thing. Perhaps if they'd come to me in my coaching practice, I would have been looking at them through a coaching lens, which would say, well, here's a person who's naturally creative and resourceful and whole, and this is someone who's maybe bumped up against something in their lives that they're wanting some help with, and sure, I could coach them through that situation or circumstance. No wonder you reached a place of saying, because you say in your promo somewhere, I think you say, or in your intro, you say, if you teach a person to fish, you mm-hmm. know, if you, if you just help them, you know, feed them, mm-hmm. they might not learn to fish. They might not learn, but if you teach them, so I can really understand getting to the point of, I think there really are people that have this sort of mindset of, I'm in a habit of feeling miserable and I'm going to keep complaining and I'm going to keep demanding that, that the system fix me. Mm-hmm. And not anything for me to do differently. It's just I need the system to fix me. Mm-hmm. Feed me. Yes. And of course, this is what they're accustomed to in, in the medical model. I have a problem. I'm going to go see the quote unquote doctor and the doctor is going to prescribe a treatment for me and then I'll feel better. I wonder if as you got into the field or even before you fully got into the field, do you think you kind of had a different expectation thinking that it might look and feel more like what you're actually doing now with your coaching? Were you at all disappointed when you realized it was gonna be more of just the system? I think in time, I found myself feeling disheartened Mm -hmm. that working with the medical model required 
that I work in a certain way mm -hmm. in order to earn my living. And I think as, as time went on, I felt more and more constrained by the ways in which I needed to work. Yeah, and I'm even thinking that when you were doing the technical support, even though it was problem-focused, ultimately you came up with solutions. People went away with solutions most of the time, did they not? Yes, and, and these were solutions that they could apply right. as, as they went along. Now that I know how to do X, when I run into this issue again, I've learned how to do X in order to solve it. Mm -hmm. And so, even though a customer might call back at some point in the future with a different problem, they rarely call back with the same problem. Yeah. So, it's almost like in a way, in a funny kind of way, it's, it seems almost like you were coaching them Mm -hmm. Then you went into the psych field thinking you would be able to help more and you found that system that really, I'm sure at times is solution oriented, people get solutions, but a lot of times I think when people are dealing with chronic pain, it's more of managing something that doesn't necessarily change. Exactly. This is something that they're living with that they're likely going to be living with for the rest of their lives. And so this is what we're working with is how can we help them to cope with the situation? Because even though I find myself saying to patients from time to time, you know, I hope that someday there's a cure for what you have, mm -hmm. even though that's going to put me out of business. <laughs> yeah. It isn't something we have a cure for. You strike me as a very solution-oriented person, though, a very can-do, wherever there's a will, I'm going to find a way, I'm going to make this work, I'm not going to let somebody or something just get in my way. So, I can imagine that in a way, finding where you were sort of told, no, you're not, your job is not here to just help these people really change. It's just to kind of help them move along with what they've got. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine that would be a little like, whoa, wait a minute. No, that's not the way I want to do my work every day. You know? Right, right, exactly. I mean, certainly my heart goes out yeah. to each and every one of my patients. You know, some of them I've been seeing for a dozen years. Wow. And so they continue to come for support, and I'm happy to be of service. And at the same time, I feel I have more to share with the world. Yeah. And maybe these folks aren't the people that I ought to be sharing what I have to share with. Maybe there's another population of people who would be better suited to what I've come to know as coaching. Yeah, I can imagine sort of feeling like maybe wishing you could say, come on out and play. It's mm -hmm. really a lot of fun out here. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the coaching like for you now that you've shifted into that? Sure. So I'm really enjoying it. It's all about solutions. And one of the big differences between, let's say, working in high tech as I was or working in healthcare as I have been, where people are coming to me for my expertise 
and certainly that's very gratifying. In the coaching arena, coaches see their clients as the experts. Mm -hmm. And so the client has the answer. The coach doesn't have the answer. People will ask me, well, what types of things do you coach people on? And I say, well, it could be career. It could be relationships with family members or friends. It could be health and wellness. could be finances. And they say, well, how could you know so much about all of these things? And I say, well, I don't. <laughs> I don't know so much about all of these things. I'm here to help people figure out things out for themselves. And if they feel like they're bumping up against something, for example, if someone were to say, well, I don't know how to best manage my budget, I might ask a question like, well, have you ever thought of consulting a financial planner? Mm -hmm. So I'm not the expert. And perhaps in, in certain cases, the client isn't the expert on the topic, but they are the experts in their lives and they get to decide what is it that they want to do? How is it that they want to go about solving their problems? I'm just really there to help them think about things. Mm. How do they want to go about tackling this problem? Because there's a whole host of ways that someone might approach a particular problem. And I'm just there to help them think through what approach is best for them, or at least as a starting point, what approach would they like to start with? And then I'm there to guide them and to talk with them about, well, how's it going? And if this isn't working, what else might we do? Or how else might we tweak this? And in a way, that sounds a lot like what I think many people think they're going to get if they go and see a supportive counselor, a client-centered therapist. It's just interesting, but I think a lot of people go, especially if they go to a, a mental health center or a, an agency kind of something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there, a lot of people are disappointed, and especially if they get a diagnosis and a prescription and nobody's really asked them, well, what do you want to do about your life? Well, how do you feel about that situation? That's, that's interesting. I really think what you're doing, what you're describing is what probably most people who are highly functioning, not people that are dealing with chronic pain like you're talking about, but most people who are dealing with marital situations or, you know, couples or relationships or, or even anxiety that isn't so clinical, but is just like, oh my God, I've got so much going on and I need to talk mm, to somebody. Sure. You know? Yeah. 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 What, what we would refer to as stress. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> but, right, the everyday things that all of us who are out there living our lives go through. Yeah. And so I'm sure that there are people who come to you as a coach who need help with stress management. And mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Wow, what a breath of fresh air. I mean, these are the real life situations. Plus, mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of people who still think that there's a stigma in going to, or they, they lump psychologist and psychiatrist together. Mm -hmm. And if you have a problem with mental health, well, then, you know, there's that stigma. But mm -hmm. going to a coach, yeah. 
right. not that stigma. Probably think that they probably think that somebody's into sports, you know. Going right, to- exactly. <laughs> yeah. When people ask me, well, what do you do? And I say, I'm a coach. And they say, oh, what sport? And I say, yeah. life. <laughs> life. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and being a good sport. How about that? <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. When you work as a coach, do you have some that are every week? Do you have them less? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are people who I coach weekly. There are people who I coach every other week. Mm -hmm. Some clients are as needed when they want to come in and or don't literally come in when they want to call and get some support around a particular situation that that they're working through. They will get in touch with me and we'll have a session and then they'll go on with their lives. We'd certainly check in through email and so forth in between calls. So there's always that connection there. And it's always very rewarding to receive an email and say, oh, remember that situation we were working on? Well, I just wanted to follow up with you and let you know how how it's working out. And they have good news to share. Yay, that's wonderful. Very now, rewarding. There isn't the licensing kind of thing with coaching as there is with psycho- psychology, is that? That's correct. There are certifications that coaches can work toward. And the, probably the most widely known is offered through the International Coach Federation, And so they will certify coaches and it's based on the number of hours of coaching that they've done and the number of clients that they've worked with and working with what's known as a mentor coach and passing an exam. And so it's a pretty rigorous process. And I would imagine you came into it already knowing a lot, you know, from overlapping, I would think there's some... Yeah, absolutely. It certainly served me well. Like I say, when when clients wonder why they're behaving in certain ways, I can I can normalize that for them and reassure them there's nothing wrong with you. What you're experiencing is very human and, and this is why it happens. And I can almost hear a, a sigh of relief over the phone once once I've shared with them that no, this this is normal. What you're dealing with is very normal. Yeah, that I'm sure makes people feel really good. Wow, I'm not crazy. Mm-hmm, I'm exactly. I'm not sick. Mm-hmm. Is there a liability insurance that you have? Yes, there is liability insurance that is available for coaches. And again, it's through the International Coach Federation. Wow, that's great. Mm-hmm. Part of why I wanted to have you here, you are going to be starting a new show, and mm-hmm. I'm so excited. Tell us about Sleuth Hound You. Sure. So the way that I came up with the name for the program is I was trying to think of something along the lines of a detective. <laughs> and so I started thinking about sleuth and how might I work that into the the name of the program and I was going through Google and I typed in the word sleuth and what came up was sleuth hound and I thought I didn't even know there was such a thing as a sleuth hound (laughs) and so I did my research and found that a sleuth hound is a type of bloodhound 
And I happen to be a, a huge animal lover, so I really like this idea of a, of a sleuth hound. And then the word you just sort of came to me as in sleuth hound you as in university, which is a learning opportunity, and also sleuth hound you as you and meaning, meaning you, because you, the listener, believe it or not, you've got the solution to your own problem. It's it's my hope and expectation that I'll be help, able to help you discover what that solution is. But believe it or not, that solution resides within you. I don't have that solution. You have that solution. I love it. So then you decided that your first project on this show is to work with a particular book. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Sure. So there's a book written by Dave Ellis, and the title of the book is Falling Awake, Creating the Life of Your Dreams. And I came across the book while I was going through my coach training, and mm -hmm. was on my bookshelf as I am an avid reader. I have many, many books on my bookshelf. For whatever reason, I chose to pick this one up, and I went through the book myself. The book is filled with exercises, written exercises and journal entries and helping the reader to think about their circumstances and their problems and how they might approach solving their problems. And there's a chapter dedicated to problem-solving strategy. So there are, I think, 12 chapters and each one focuses on a, a specific strategy. And so I think it's, it's wonderful in that it gives the reader the opportunity to try different approaches. So identify a problem that you have and try this strategy and how does that work for you and try these exercises and these journal entries and so forth. And then you move on to the next chapter and oh, here's an, another strategy that you might be interested in trying and see how this works for you and so on and so forth. And by the end of the book, the author invites the reader to go back through the book anytime with any problem that they might encounter and apply each of the strategies and, and see which works best because chances are out of 12 strategies, there's, there's one that's going to work for a given problem, at least one. Mm -hmm. So the chapters are about strategies, not just themes like I don't know, time management or, or stress management per se. They're chapters that deal with strategies, right? Is yes, exactly. Okay. Exactly. And within each chapter, there are different exercises to help people to sort of practice or, or get familiar with the strategies. I know that um, the book is on Bookshare's wish list, and mm -hmm. it, it is available in Kindle, right? Yes, I have the Kindle version, and I also have the print version here. Yeah, and um, but even without having the book, I know you are, oh boy, you are super prepared with mm -hmm. outlines and, you know, syllabus, and I mean, you're going to be such a great instructor at helping mm -hmm. people to learn about this material and these strategies, even if we don't have the book. 
Exactly. I'm, I'm designing the program so whether someone has the book or not, they'll be able to follow along. And my hope is that people will choose to try at least some of the exercises that I'll be recommending as we go through the program. Mm-hmm. And I have gone through this book myself with my own um, my own issue around my coaching practice. And so as I talk with folks about exercises, I'll be able to draw on my own experience and say, for example, here's what I was dealing with. And when I applied this strategy or I wrote about this topic, here's what I came up with. So just as an example to the listening audience. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a monthly show with a podcast, and it's going to be great, too, because people are going to be able to let you know some of what they come up with and or ask questions, Mm -hmm. and so that's going to be a very cool thing. And I remember Dave Ellis because I taught college success skills, and he had written those books and course materials for for several years, and you actually spoke with Dave, didn't you? We traded email, and we communicated with one another on LinkedIn. So I I have gotten his attention, and he's been very supportive. I explained to him how I was intending to use his book, and he said that he'd actually worked with, with college professors who had experience working with folks with physical disabilities, And he was very supportive of my using his book in this way. Excellent. Yeah, I know somebody who went to one of his workshops and just they had a, I guess he does falling awake workshops Mm -hmm. or some people he's trained do them perhaps. And someone went to an afternoon one and just enjoyed meeting people and getting ideas. And I think it's a very interesting title. Mm, I agree. I can see, you know, somebody wondering, well, what does that mean, falling awake? You know, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. does that mean when I fell out of bed or, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think, it, I think it has to do with becoming aware. <laughs> yeah, I do too. I, th- I think it's really great though. Um, and so, yeah, we're we're just going to be looking forward to this, and uh, I think it'll be a lot of fun. I think mm. it, it. I just know there's this playful side of you as mm. well, and creative. I just think it's going to be great. Well, I, thank you. I appreciate the vote of confidence. Absolutely. Well, I have been a cheerleader. Yes, you have. There's sort of this figuring out now where are we going what are how are we doing this and then wow finding solutions there you go Mm -hmm, exactly yeah exactly well what haven't we talked about that you might want to include or anything else that yeah i actually if you don't mind i'd like to share a little story that i think started me on this uh solution focused track excellent i'd love that very young age. So I was in elementary school and I came home from school one day and I was doing my homework at the kitchen table as I often did. And I was going along doing my homework and my the pencil that I was writing with 
rolled off the table and fell on the floor. And my mother, who happened to be fully sighted, was standing nearby. And from my chair, I was looking down toward the floor, hoping that maybe I could see where my pencil had gone, and I couldn't see it. And my mother, standing nearby, she, she could see exactly where the pencil was. Now, she could have gone over and picked up the pencil and given it to me, and I would have been on my merry way. What she did instead, very calmly, very quietly, and yet very firmly, she said to me, I want you to get out of your chair, and I want you to get down on your knees, and I want you to use your hands to find the pencil. And so I did as I was told, and I found the pencil with my hands, and I stood back up, and I got back in my chair, and I went on with my homework. I don't think that I fully appreciated what she had done for me in that moment, but essentially what she taught me was there are many ways to solve a problem. And there are ways that fully sighted people solve problems. And there are ways that people like you who are blind and visually impaired solve problems. And sometimes you're going to need to figure out what your way is. And if you work at it, you'll find your way. You may not go about it in the same way that a fully sighted person would go about it, but that doesn't mean that you can't accomplish anything that you want to accomplish in life. I love that. I love that. And what I like about it is that there are ways in the unseen, like you couldn't see to know where that was on the floor. You couldn't see it from where you were sitting, mm -hmm. but your mother knew that it was still possible that it yes. was, there was a way. And at the same time, I hear a lot of people sighted and blind who some have a can-do possibility thinking and some have a cannot-do impossibility. And I would think that a big portion of your work and mine at times is to help people know that, like your mom, it is possible and sometimes we just have to move into something beyond what we think we know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe yes. outside of the comfort zone. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Thank you. I'm, I'm very grateful to my mother for having taught me that lesson at a very young age. Were you ever, ever able to share with her how much that had an impact? Unfortunately not. No. Mm -hmm. I bet she knows. <laughs> I bet she does. Too. Yes, <laughs> I bet she yes, does. <laughs> yes. I'm willing to bet that's the yeah. case. Yeah. Life teachings. <laughs> yes, and how they stay with us. Mm. How can people find you? So if folks would be interested in learning more about me and my coaching practice, my website is www.com 
capable coach that's c-a-p-a-b-l-e-c-o-a-c-h dot com what a great website name thank you it was waiting for me because no one else had taken it so there's a contact link there yes there's a contact me and anyone can send me a message and i'm happy to respond Wonderful. Well, I am super excited. And is there anything else? In case your listeners are interested in learning more about Falling Awake and Dave Ellis, there is a website, which is www.fallingawake.com. Okay. And Dave tells me that all of his materials are up there. So apparently he's recently retired and he said everything is up there and available for free. Wow. So, so that might be the next best thing to having the book. You know, it might be mm-hmm. that all kinds of worksheets and different things yeah. are there. Yeah. And there are videos. So, you know, if people oh. want to listen instead of read for themselves, they can do that. There might be stuff even on YouTube. I imagine so. I'm excited. I'm so glad our paths have crossed. Same here. It's very timely. There's so much that we're all going through. Mm-hmm. World strategies that can help to make a difference are really, really important. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, thank you, Linda. Thank you for being my guest. Thank you for helping us all to find strategies and courage to travel on the inside track in our lives. And I can't wait for Sleuthound You. Thank you. Remember BPI? Oh yeah, Blind LGBT Pride International. They're a special interest affiliate of ACB. Yes, they are the ones doing all these cool things at convention. Guess what they're up to now? Do tell. Their own show. It's called Pride Connection. That's great, but what if I'm not a part of the LGBT community? This is a show for everyone. Actually, non-LGBT and non-disabled folks are known as allies, and they are a huge portion of BPI's membership. Everyone is welcome. So what kinds of topics can I expect from Pride Connection? Fun and relevant topics for everyone, from blindness to LGBT education, technology to advocacy. So when will Pride Connection take place? Every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Be sure to tune in so we can all connect and learn while having fun. Pride Connection on On ACB ACB Radio Radio Mainstream. Mainstream.